Thanks be to God. Well, my friend Mike Neely is the director of a ministry that some of you might know of called Tierra Nueva. It's up in the Skagit Valley. And Tierra Nueva is a ministry that began actually in 1982, at least that's when the seeds of it were started, when some Presbyterian missionaries were sent to Honduras to work alongside those who worked in the farms and the fields. And when they came back in 1994, when they returned from their service, they realized that they were actually now missionaries who had been sent to do the very same work in their home culture. They began to notice that there were migrations of people that filled up the Skagit Valley who worked in the fields, the same as the folks that they had worked alongside of for so many years in Honduras. Folks who spoke little English, who struggled with the law at times for various reasons and who had very little advocacy in that process. And so their ministry began to expand from the fields into the local prisons where they began chapel ministries in Spanish. And Tierra Nueva is a growing ministry that is continuing to flourish up in the Skagit Valley. It invites church groups to come and to spend time with them in their work, and they offer a new perspective on the word and the work of the church. They offer the perspective of those who are on the outside of American culture. And see, when you approach the Bible, when you're reading alongside of people who are on the outside of the culture from which you might be on the inside of, for the people of, who don't share many of the same privileges or perspectives that you might share, you might be surprised what you find. The gospel feels like a different place when you approach it with these eyes. And I note this today because Paul was actually a person like this. We think of Paul as a giant within the church. And of course, we, that makes sense because there are cathedrals all over Western Europe that, are, that were built in the name of Paul. But in the first century, Paul was a person on the outside. He didn't share many of the luxuries that were afforded to him by culture. And it's true when you read Acts that Paul had a lot of skills. He was an educated man. He spoke various languages. He was a Roman citizen. But to some degree, Paul had left all of those things behind when he became a missionary for the church. The most powerful place that Paul could have lived and existed is in and around the city of Jerusalem, not as a person who was following in the way of Jesus, but as a member of the Jewish teaching caste of which he was a part of. And he talks about that in many of his letters when he talks about his descent being from the tribe of Benjamin and being schooled uh, within the school of Gamaliel. So the places where Paul really had clout and power is in a place that he left behind. And when he goes out into these far reaches of the Roman Empire, he does have some vestiges of a culture that offers him some support. But he really speaks 
as one from below. And it's interesting to me that when Paul reflects on his imprisonment, he doesn't actually see it as a source of frustration. At least that's not the message that he wants to send his community, though no doubt it was a source of frustration for him. He doesn't expect that he will be released, or even that there is a legal framework that will be able to offer him justice. He lives from below, with a different mandate and a different way of seeing the world. He assumes, and in this it's hard for us to get our minds wrapped around, he assumes and actually he expects that the God who has led him this far into the world is not a God who is going to leave him now even as he is relegated to even further outskirting in the community. This is not a God who is going to leave him even when he faces the realm of prison. For Paul, God is strangely not about winners and losers. God is not interested in having the most things or the most comfortable configuration of life. Instead, Paul is interested in one thing, and this becomes crystal clear as he continues to write the rest of this letter to the Philippians. Paul is interested in that the message of the gospel is being put out into the world. And if the answer is yes, then he's happy. At least he uses this word, I rejoice. That's a different word than happy. It's that word joy, karas. It comes from the inside, this sense of wisdom and experience being brought into the emotional realm. You see, Paul's faith in Jesus is a faith that leads him into engagement in every situation he finds himself in. He has a time in this letter in which we reflected on today where he briefly reflects on the realities of life and death. And Paul states very clearly as he says that, that he is not afraid of death, that death is not the end. He claims that very clearly, that no, for Paul, death is actually reunion with the person of Jesus. But instead, even knowing this, he reaches as much as he is able to out of his own circumstances to be as present as he can with his community. So even in the face of prison and in the face of knowing the realities of death, Paul's faith leads him to engagement at every turn. But my question for us today, and especially as we consider the realities of the Reformation over this next month, what kind of engagement is Paul talking about? Is it just a proclamation? Or is it some sort of strategy? Is it about the mere message getting out? Is it about the words being right and the doctrines lining up? About finding the right way that we practice the table and the right order of worship and the right way that we structure ourselves as a community and the right things that we say about Jesus? Is, is that what Paul is trying to get in order? 
What does proclamation mean? Especially in our world now where it only takes the click of a button to have multiple proclamations hitting us from every angle. What does proclamation mean? Well, the Greek and the Roman world had a strong history about talking about new ideas, and we've talked about that before. And they would know better than us, even, how to head into the square of debate and talk about particular philosophies and whether some were better than others. The Epicureans versus the Stoics, we know this sort of thing. But this is not the strategy that Paul uses when he talks about proclamation. He's actually not interested at this point in talking about philosophies. That doesn't seem to be the direction that he goes. He is interested in doing something else. He is interested in doing something called announcing the person of Jesus Christ. And in fact, that's the word that's translated preach. It's the word that comes from the root kerygma. But it means less me standing in front of you, telling you and sharing my interpretation of the gospel. I'm not sure that this is exactly what Paul had in mind when he talks about preaching. Though there is something to be said about this manner of thing that we're doing right now. But I'm not sure that that is what Paul had in mind when he talks about preaching. Kerygma is about heralding, announcing, realigning your body and your community with that which you see to be the message that is announced on the scene. It has more to do with how we might understand a newspaper headline than in a 20-minute sermon. That which we see, the facts which have been announced, are translated then into our lives and we respond. So preaching and proclamation for Paul is really about the fact that history has been changed because an announcement has come onto the scene that needs to be shared. And that is about the person of Jesus Christ. And so for Paul, the life of his experience in prison is actually connected to that kerygma. His life story is part of the preaching that he's doing. In fact, it probably is the preaching that he's doing. Paul doesn't see his very personal life as separate from the story of the gospel. In fact, he sees it as deeply connected, as part of the preaching that needs to happen. In other words, for Paul, preaching kerygma is not a philosophical debate, nor is it a doctrinal argument. But it is the reality that has flowed from the choice of Paul to announce the coming of Jesus. His imprisonment is part of that. His accusers are part of that. Even those who are talking about it from a negative point of view, as Paul says, so as to make fun of him, that's sort of the way that it gets across in the Greek, that there are folks who are sort of talking about Jesus as if it's a joke, right? As if if it didn't really happen. These are actually people who are doing the very thing that Paul wants them to do. Because it's not about what anybody is saying. It's not about whether they're right or they're wrong. 
It's about the fact that Paul is unabashedly following someone who he believes is ushering a radical orientation to a new way of living. And that person alone has led him into prison. And that is what he wants people to know. Everyone that he meets. The story of his life is directly connected to his message. It can't be separated. For him, it tells the same story of the gospel. It is a life that is deeply connected to his community and that is given and offered to everyone that he comes into contact with. While we live in a world where we have started to lose the art of learning by doing. We are trained instead in just about everything that you can think of. And maybe that's not necessarily bad. But after our training, then we are invited to enter in and to give it a try. But I wonder if faith works that way. I know it hasn't in my life, and maybe it has in yours. I don't know. But in my experience, you can't be trained in faith. You just have to learn by doing. And that means that along the way, you get a lot of things wrong. You also get a lot of things right. You try things, and you regroup, and you realize, well, that didn't work, and you try it at a different angle. You learn by jumping into the pool rather than walking around the edges. It's always an embodied experience. It's our life that speaks. Our doctrines just sort of lie dormant in the background. I don't see anybody today arguing over the reality of transubstantiation. It might matter to some, but for the most part, it just lies in the background, part of the fabric of history that some need to still work out, but definitely not at the forefront of where the mission of the gospel is pushing us. Tierra Nueva wasn't a plan in the way that we might imagine it. It didn't have a 10-year forecast. It was a faithful response to a felt need in the world. It was a crazy dream from a group of missionaries who had their experience in Honduras and allowed God to speak when they came back to the Skagit Valley and to wonder together about what might happen should they choose to respond. And it became a living and breathing ministry. A ministry that offers ad advocacy for folks who are faced with the challenges of incarceration, a ministry that offers chaplaincy and work skill development, and a ministry that offers further skill development for those who work in the fields. A living, breathing ministry is what speaks in the world in which we live in today, an embodied place. Just like the community of Northminster, it is an assembly of people who can choose to respond to the felt needs of the world. And that 
is the message. That's the kerygma. That's what it means to preach today. To engage with our bodies and with our life stories. That is our call as people of Jesus. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we need your help. As we long to connect our life stories to the proclamation of the gospel, we often get sidelined in various ways. Recenter us. Help us to preach the gospel at all times and, if necessary, use words. We ask that you would give us this strength and power by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us stand.